Hey everybody, it's David. One quick housekeeping announcement. If you are a member of the Most Book Club and you haven't joined one of these conversations live, I really challenge you to try it out. I think it's a really interesting and exciting way to take your engagement with this material a step further. So that's my challenge to you this week. And also, uh, as usual, if you're getting something out of the show, give it a rating. If you're listening on Apple or one of the other platforms. And if you have a suggestion on how to make it better, leave a comment or send me an email. All right, on with the show. Whenever I have students or on occasion relatives who have said to me, I just don't see any point in voting. It just doesn't matter. You know, my attitude is number one, people died for this. And number two, keep two thoughts in your brain at once. You know, go out and vote and then do the other work that you think is more important than effective. Because I think it's a privilege to decide you're above voting. Welcome to another edition of Must Books Podcast. My name is Dave DeWayne. I'm the president of the Must Book Club and your host. Today we are kicking off a series of three conversations on the history of women's suffrage. We have a wonderful guest today. Laura Ginsburg is joining us from Penn State, where she is a historian who specializes in 19th century American women with a particular interest in the intersection of intellectual and social history. She's the author of several books, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton, An American Life. And while we touch on Cady Stanton in this conversation, What's mostly about building context around the suffrage movement, dispelling some myths, and talking about our situation today. This conversation is also a little unique for our podcast in that Lori has opted to give an opening statement, which is a very powerful way of setting the tone for this entire series. So please enjoy. Okay, so thanks so much for inviting me. Tonight you've read several sections from the first volume of the History of Women's Suffrage, which was edited by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Matilda Jocelyn Gage, and a bit of Anthony's response to being arrested for voting in 1872. Um, This is an interesting process for me. Unlike when I teach a class, I didn't choose the reading. So I'm gonna be very interested to hear what you thought of them and what you got out of them. And what I'm gonna do is provide some context for the movement and for the readings that you've gotten So what you can tell from these readings immediately is that this conversation and this movement is bigger and more sprawling than any commemoration of a constitutional amendment could possibly contain. If you want to learn more about the 19th Amendment commemoration, you could look up the U.S. Centennial Commission's report, and they have a blog housed in the National Park Service website called Suff Buffs. I did not make up that title. There's lots of resources out there. But let me start there with a very simple point about the 19th Amendment itself, which women's historians have been beating our heads against the wall throughout the centennial. Let's just agree to stop saying that the 19th Amendment gave American women the right to vote. Many women could vote before the amendment was ratified and many could not vote after it. Prior to its passage, women in 15 states could vote on an equal basis with men. 12 other states granted women so-called presidential suffrage. So before the 19th Amendment appeared in the Constitution, in other words, politicians or male voters in a majority of states had passed and learned to live with women's suffrage. Furthermore, not all American women citizens could vote after the 19th Amendment was added to the Constitution. Women in Puerto Rico remained disenfranchised because the amendment only prohibited states, not territories, 
from limiting the suffrage on the basis of sex. It took another nine years for the Puerto Rican legislature to grant literate women the right to vote. In the South, black women, like black men, remained largely disenfranchised. In the face of leading white suffragists' refusal to work against Jim Crow voter suppression, African-American women in the North and notably throughout the South worked to register to vote and to make the 19th Amendment a fact. So again, the 19th Amendment did not give all American women the vote. The 1965 Voting Rights Act, which the Supreme Court has since gutted, did that. So just get that out there. So let me zip through a few major points about the movement for women's rights, starting with it was never focused only on women's suffrage, but was a larger, broader movement for women's rights. To place the documents you read in context, I'll raise a few of the movement's flaws as well as its successes. And along the way, I hope to complicate your assumptions about commemoration and progress and how ideas that were once considered unthinkable become so much part of the water that we forget to take seriously what was at stake. I've written a biography of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, which I hope you'll read. So I'm gonna skip much of the background on her that I might otherwise include. The demand for women's rights arose from a particular historical context that was characterized by friction, hostility, enormous optimism, and often violent opposition, the movement to abolish slavery. In the late 1830s, as white abolitionist women found their voice and visibility being challenged within the movement to end slavery, they increasingly spoke up in defense of their right to engage fully in a moral cause. Almost a decade before the convention at Seneca Falls, which has come to be seen as the beginning of the women's rights movement, we'll talk about that. Abolitionist and Quaker Sarah Grimke had declared, quote, men and women are created equal. They are both moral and accountable beings. All I ask our brethren is that they take their feet from our necks and permit us to stand upright on the ground which God destined for us to occupy. Soon after, her sister Angelina argued that it is a woman's right to have a voice in all the laws and regulations by which she is to be governed, whether in church or state. Anti-slavery women and men represented a minuscule percentage of Northerners. Ending slavery, which we now see as just and inevitable, threatened the American economic and racial system, North and South. Those who demanded it, and especially those who challenged racial prejudice, were considered, I have such a hard time getting this across to my students, but I hope you'll believe me about this. They were considered the lunatic fringe of American society. It was within that context, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, a movement uh, leader among them, was within that context that a few women demanded women's right to own property, acquire an education, exercise a vote, speak out, enter the professions, and even to get a divorce. It's hard for us to imagine how terrifying this was to people outside the reform community and some within it. I have an exercise I do with my students about this if you wanna try it later. But these were the very things that Stanton was referring to when she said, this sounds like a very radical proposition now, but be sure that someday in the future, Americans will ask how these things could ever have been done otherwise. So the ideas expressed by women's rights activists were floating around their community. Some of them were entering the mainstream, but forming a movement to advance them was new. As much as we generally think of the convention at Seneca Falls as the origin story of that movement, it's worth pointing out that of the 300 people who met there, or two weeks later in the follow-up convention in Rochester, which you read about as well, not one person was hearing about women's rights for the first time. These were experienced activists in a movement that had faced mob violence, community hostility, 
and widespread disparagement. Social movements nearly always construct origin stories about themselves. They're almost always oversimplified and they're often wrong. But I want to say one word about this particular one. It was the editors of the history of women's suffrage, pieces of which you read tonight, who as they chose and sorted particular primary sources shaped a particular self-serving history of the movement's beginnings, heroes, and goals. As Lisa Tetro shows in her book, The Myth of Seneca Falls, Stanton, Anthony, and Gage arranged the collection to enhance their leadership and their own version of the movement's trajectory. And it's worth pointing out, another thing his, women's historians bang our heads against the wall a lot, is that of the three of them, only Stanton was actually at Seneca Falls. The other two were not. Whatever the problems with dating the start of the movement, the document that Stanton and her friends produced in 1848, the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments, which you read, was extraordinary a foundational text in American democratic ideals. I hope we'll talk about it, hope you'll have questions about it, but I hope you've noted several things to begin. First, what it did do, mirror one of the nation's sacred texts, implicitly telling Americans that the revolution was unfinished. What it demanded, a very wide range of things, not limited to the vote, some of them involving legal and political change, some church policies, other what we would call cultural transformation, and also what it did not demand, I expect you'll add to the list, but I want to point out it did not talk about slavery. It did not talk about the female factory workers who also populated Seneca Falls or the domestic servants who worked in many of these women's homes who did not attend the convention. And I hope you'll add to that list. Whatever the document's limitations, all this talk about women as independent, rights-bearing citizens left its listeners, supporters, as well as appalled opponents breathless. Some newspaper editors could only sputter incoherently with outrage. You may be shocked to learn that rather than discuss the issues at hand, they resorted to emotional outbursts against the women's looks, their clothing, and their marriage prospects, calling into question what we would call their sexual and gender identity. But its words can, if we listen closely, remind us again of the radical potential of the defense of individual rights including, but again, not only the right to vote. Through her 87 years, Stanton was brilliant at expanding these fundamentally liberal views of women's status to a radical critique of religious teachings, of the marriage contract, and of women's sexual subordination to men. We live in a world that remains deeply gendered with women disproportionately represented among the poor, the illiterate, the victimized, and the powerless, with educated professional women insisting that they have chosen as their primary job being mothers, with a virulent and crass misogyny unleashed in our politics and on our streets, but we cannot any of us imagine our lives without the work these women did. But at the risk of being a party pooper, what Sarah Ahmed in Living a Feminist Life so aptly calls a feminist killjoy, I wanna raise briefly my arguments both with Stanton, with the movement and with the process of commemoration itself. I do this not only because I am a feminist killjoy, in fact, out to disrupt people's investments in the happy story of ever expanding progress, but because these disruptions have implications for our own notions of democracy, feminism, and social justice, and for our commemoration of them. Elizabeth Cady Stanton considered herself on the very cutting edge of American radicalism, and she could be dazzling, but she made comments so racist that they can leave us not to mention many of her anti-slavery allies speechless. 
This ugly streak of elitism and racism became most apparent in the post-Civil War debates about black men's suffrage. But even as early as 1848, in the Seneca Falls Declaration of Sentiments that you read, they protested that women were denied rights that were given to the most ignorant and degraded men, both natives and foreigners. Even that early, Stanton's sense of entitlement and indignation as an educated white native-born woman shaped her priorities. These debates, which still raise historians' hackles, aren't just gotcha moments. They complicate Stanton's best ideas and the women's movement's victories in ways that Americans still have not fully addressed. They speak to the limits in how we talk about democracy itself. They should force us, when we use the word women or refer to women's rights, to ask which women. They show the dangers of a politics based entirely on individual rights, one that ignores the group and community interests that were also, are also at stake. And of course, they challenge our best hopes that our heroes and heroines' admirable positions always outweighed their failings. Textbooks and tributes invariably describe Stanton as a devoted abolitionist. And it's certainly true that she lived amidst a radical community of abolitionists, that she was married to one, and that she opposed slavery. But for Stanton, three decades of anti-slavery struggle serve mostly as backdrop, an essential lesson in women's degradation, status, and rights. Unlike most of her anti-slavery friends, men and women, she never saw slavery or racism as the fissures in American society that demanded her sustained attention. Other passionate supporters of women's rights believe that their primary obligation was ending slavery and after the Civil War, ensuring that African-Americans had the means to protect their community's newly gained rights. Stanton considered them merely timid. To Stanton, the Negro question was over. The curtain has fallen on the last act, she wrote in 1868. The lights are extinguished and the audience gone to their homes. In the face of the terrible racial violence of the post-war period, Stanton, who boasted of her genius for napping, did not lose much sleep. It was after the Civil War that these activists, now sort of quickly becoming the progressive wing of the Republican Party, differed about whether to support a 15th Amendment that granted black men's voting rights or hold out for an amendment that protected women's rights as well, which historians for the most part have come to agree was not going to happen, but they couldn't have known that at the time. Stanton's and Anthony's rhetoric on behalf of universal rights sounded wonderful on the stump. Some tell us that this is not the time for a woman to make the demand that this is the Negro's hour, Stanton declared in 1867. No, my friends, this is the nation's hour. This is the hour to settle what are the rights of, the citizen, of a citizen of the Republic. This was powerful stuff, which Stanton expressed as a moral imperative with which no thinking person could disagree. But thinking people did disagree. The right of woman to vote is as sacred in my judgment as that of man, Frederick Douglass insisted. And I am quite willing at any time to hold up both hands in favor of this right. What Douglass argued in the face of mounting racist violence in the South was that the crisis facing the black community was simply more urgent and his rhetoric was chilling. Quote, when women, because they are women, are hunted down through the cities of New York and New Orleans, when they are dragged from their houses and hung upon lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains dashed out upon the pavement, when they are objects of insult and outrage at every turn, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down over their heads, when their children are not allowed to enter schools, 
then they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. Stanton could have stuck to the lofty rhetoric of universal justice. Instead, she let loose some extraordinarily racist remarks to the effect that educated women were more fit to vote than recently emancipated African-American men. Protected by the 13th Amendment, Stanton announced, the black man is declared free. But as the celestial gate to civil rights is slowly moving on its hinges, it becomes a serious question whether the representative women of the nation, interesting phrase, had better stand aside and see Sambo walk into the kingdom first. As for black women, she said, their emancipation is but another form of slavery. It is better, Stanton declared firmly, if inexplicably, to be the slave of an educated white man than of a degraded, ignorant black one. Stanton remained oblivious to the hurt in her friend Frederick Douglass's words when he objected to her employment of certain names such as Sambo and the gardener and the boot black and the daughters of Jefferson and Washington and all the rest that I cannot coincide with. Yet there was more at stake here than mere figures of speech, thoughtless slips of the tongue and pen. In staking her claim to universal rights on the basis of the priority of white women's individual rights, Stanton did damage to her friendships, her movement, her claims to the purest radicalism, and to our efforts to commemorate that work and create a more just democracy. Stanton herself never voted for long on any one idea. She disagreed with her friend, Susan B. Anthony, who came to believe that winning the vote should be the only important goal. By 1872, I'm not sure that your book dated Stan, um, Anthony's trial, but it's 1872. By 1872, many of the ideas of the women's rights movement had permeated the popular mind, which had largely come to accept female education within certain limits, public speaking and married women's property rights, all of which were widely debated at girls' schools and academies around kitchen tables and in legislative halls. Some Americans had accepted reluctantly a few female doctors, ministers, public speakers. Liberalizing divorce law was still considered far too radical, even among women's rights activists. When Stanton insisted on raising it at the 1860 Women's Rights Convention, she nearly tore the meeting apart. But intellectual change often happens long before actual laws are passed, as people grow comfortable with an idea and it gets worn and softer with use. Still, voting remained highly contested, a form of civil disobedience, an outright challenge to the way things had always been, which brings us to Susan B. Anthony's defense of her right to vote. Um, I tend to be allergic to firsts and watersheds, so I should point out that the presidential election of 1872 was not the first time women tried to vote. As early as 1866, Josephine Griffin recognized that in Washington DC where black men could vote, it offered a test case for women's voting. And so she organized numerous black and white women to vote in the municipal elections of 1869. Nevertheless, by 1872, a lot had changed with the passage of the 14th and 15th amendments to the constitution. Um, Virginia Minor and her husband, Missouri lawyer Francis Minor had developed what they termed the new departure the idea that since the 14th Amendment did not explicitly prohibit female citizens from voting, they should take rather than simply plead for the vote. Hundreds of women throughout the North and West strode to the polls. Several of them would take their case all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in Minor versus Happersett in 1875 that the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution did not guarantee women the right to vote. So in 1872, Susan B. Anthony with her sisters and neighbors were among many who answered the call. 
Well, I have been and gone and done it. Positively voted the Republican ticket straight, she wrote Stanton excitedly. It was all a splendid action, reported Anthony, adding, I hope you voted too. Stanton had not, and she sniffed dismissively at Anthony's action. There's a whole complicated, any of you who's ever voted knows how to balance who you're voting for with the right to vote and the fact that Anthony had gone and voted for Grant irritated Stanton too, who preferred that she vote for the radical Victoria Woodhull, who was running on an independent ticket that year. A whole other side story. But in the meantime, Anthony and her 14 associates were arrested and faced an extraordinary trial for the crime of voting while female. The document you read today is the result of the judge, foolishly, I think, asking the defendant if she had anything to say. Really? She was convicted and sentenced with a fine of $100 that she refused to pay. A side note is that Donald Trump pardoned Anthony almost 150 years later. Suffice it to say that the reasons for that were complicated. While Anthony came to focus exclusively on the suffrage, after all, the 19th Amendment became known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, Stanton and their ally Matilda Jocelyn Gage did not. To them, the teachings of religion, especially Protestantism, in which they were steeped even when they claimed to reject it, as well as women's sexual subordination, were equal pillars in the oppression of women's minds, bodies, and independence. The piece you read on preceding causes offers a view of history that we can contest, but its take on religion is well within the framework for 19th century free thinking. Um, for all the boast, as they put it, that women holds a higher position in the world of work under Christianity than under pagandom, Stanton and Gage argued that women often had higher status under older regimes. It's a little jarring because they knew better that they don't talk about the nearby Iroquois where women probably had the highest status of any culture to that date. It's a very Eurocentric approach. Um, certainly Gage knew better. It's a little sort of surprisingly Eurocentric approach. They insisted that the Christian church had been the enemy of progress and women's advancement. Um, the chapter includes a number of seemingly random examples and quotes, but I think the gist of it is clear. Ministers had stressed and perpetuated women's inferiority and lack of self-respect had created policies that kept women's bodies and minds subordinated to men and so on. Um, Stanton's hostility to the clergy was of long standing. She would go on to write something called the Women's Bible, which we could talk about. Um, I don't wanna go into much background about that. Certainly she and Gage saw evidence throughout their lives that strict adherence to Christian teachings thwarted women's aspirations to independence. But these women also had long known Quakers, including Susan B. Anthony and Lucretia Mott, whose religion was the most egalitarian to date among the Christian denominations. And if they'd been paying attention, they would also have known that the African-American church offered spaces for dis disenfranchised black women to challenge the politics of white supremacy. They have a certain focus in their objections to Christianity, which was complicated here. I wanna just mention two contradictions in this piece. First, for all their hostility to ministers and religious teachings, the authors of the history of women's suffrage believed that Anglo-Saxons represented the superior orders of humanity. Preceding causes is drenched with a deeply racist notion of the advance of civilization itself, characteristic of the social Darwinism of their day. An interesting contradiction, considering their approval of pre-Christian civilizations. Second, they stress religion's terrible effect on women in ways that might make us cringe. They call women a retarding voice in civilization, a dangerous element to free institutions, an uncomplaining drudge, other phrases that led some women of the time to feel insulted by their particular framing of free thinking. And by the late 19th century, liberal Protestant dominations had come around to 
nearly all of the demands made by middle-class women's rights advocates, including the right to property, education, wages, and so on. Even the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the largest organization of 19th century women, had come to support women's suffrage on the grounds of protecting the home. And there was a kind of mainstream, respectable Christian liberalism that led many of Stanton and Gage's allies to feel they overstated the power of religion in their time. We could, we could debate that, whether that was the case. Finally, let me return to the vote itself. By the early 20th century, women's suffrage on a national level had come to seem inevitable, though politicians were often the last to realize this and much work remained. The movement in some ways grew more conservative and more mainstream, narrower in focus, um, especially with the addition of small town white Christian women who wanted to protect the home. But its huge numbers of supporters also included a radical wing, which offered endorsements and energy and votes from socialists, racial justice advocates, union leaders, and working class immigrants. These were not people who viewed the vote as an end in itself, or certainly as their only cause. They viewed it as a tool to empower and protect their own communities. For them, the 19th Amendment was not an ending, but a step in a long struggle. When African-American women implored white suffrage leaders like Alice Paul to use their brand new votes to help defeat Jim Crow, Alice Paul refused. Or when Carrie Chapman Catt tried to distance the suffrage movement from radical and working class voters who had gotten it passed in New York City in 1917, these white middle-class leaders contributed to the narrative that allowed museums, and textbooks and popular celebrations to declare that the 19th Amendment was the end success of the 19th century movement for women's rights. Not all supporters of women's suffrage viewed the vote in the same way. As numerous historians have argued, and I would recommend new books by Martha Jones, Kathleen Cahill, and Alison Parker, women of color largely supported women's suffrage within the context of their own community struggles. Suffrage was for them not so much a symbol of independence, but a tool that could support the rights of struggling communities. It would be hard to name, I've had colleagues who try to play this game of finding someone. It's pretty hard to name an African-American woman who actually opposed granting the vote to women. But many, perhaps most black women, enter the movement for women's suffrage to resist black men's disfranchisement in the South. Similarly, members of the Socialist Party and labor unions who did not think that women's suffrage was the main thing going on, demanded the vote so that wages, both women's and men's could be raised, workplaces made safer and other rights of citizenship advanced. Thus, many activists were wary and justifiably so of white middle-class suffragists like Stanton, Anthony and Gage who claimed to speak in the name of all women. Black suffragists were especially mistrustful of being invited to sit at a suffrage table with Southern women who advocated women's suffrage in order to maintain white supremacy in the South. This does not, by the way, require a subtle reading of the evidence. Bell Kearney, a leader in Mississippi's women's suffrage organizations declared quite openly that, quote, the enfranchisement of women would ensure immediate and durable white supremacy honestly attained. I think many of us would agree that this version of democracy echoes those of us who would suppress votes, and this always means certain votes in our own time. I bet that few of us here would give up our individual rights. Indeed, the notion that rights in here in each of us pervades our society, politics, popular culture, career advice. Uh, the current pandemic is teaching many people to some collective astonishment and grief. 
what leaving all decisions to individuals can mean. Focusing exclusively on individual liberty and choice is itself a privilege, one that limits movements for social justice and can distort their goals. It shapes what counts as women's rights, whose rights matter, and which ones we celebrate as progress. So I wanna end with a question really, what is a commemoration to do? What should we celebrate? Whom should we include? Should we commemorate only what we did, which is presumably a happy ending, or what we failed to do, who got left out? Rather than assume that the vote was the only or even the most important goal of the 19th century movement for women's rights, I suggest that we listen harder to suffrage supporters who thought that gaining the vote was a beginning and that having it and using it could help gain a fair wage, healthcare, a decent education, safety at work, recourse in the face of violence, and a voice in their local and national communities. So I welcome your questions. Professor Ginsburg, thank you so much. There's so much that I would like to ask you, but of course, our first question is going to come from Shaista Sabir. Hi, I'm Shaista. Um, so you spoke about individual rights versus group interests, and this thought process is a cyclical theme in American history, but also reminds us that the U.S. is a constitutional republic and not just the democracy we propagate to the world. To that end, it would seem that we are constantly repeating ourselves historically and almost stagnant in the pursuit of life and liberty for all. With this history in mind, how do you feel these leaders in the suffragist movement would respond to items such as universal health care and other socialist ideals? Well, that is a great question. That is a great question. And my first response to that is, is, my, is the thing I'm always saying, which, which leaders, you know, which women? I mean, among, the, among suffrage activists were labor leaders and socialists and African-American activists, some socialists and some not, um, religious thinkers and irreligious thinkers. They had a range of views. I think that people like Stanton came from a position of feeling that pretty much she had all the rights and privileges she needed except for the vote and that women like her were entitled to the vote without really caring that much about what it would do. She felt it was insulting not to have it. I will say that after the suffrage was passed, I thought I was gonna give this quote and forgot to. After the suffrage was in the constitution, there's this um, newspaper called The Woman Patriot, which said, surely you all didn't think the feminists meant to stop with the vote. This, they never meant to stop with the vote. And then the magazine goes on to quote from the birth control review. So there is this sense that once you've demanded more rights, you, you're on a slippery slope and you're gonna demand more rights. The issue for a large, I believe, this is, my, this is the, the politics me, not so much the history me, although I think it's borne out by history. I think that when you have a mass movement, what you need to be really sure of is that even if you're focused as a mass movement on particular goals that you don't let other people get thrown under the bus because those because their goals are not your top priority. And that seems to happen a lot with mass with as movements get bigger and bigger. You need to allow your um, coalition that you've built to have the smaller voices visible at all times. Does that help? Yes, thank you. It's just what you said about the rights being the beginning and not the end. You know, birth control advocates, Margaret Sanger and others, in Margaret Sanger mostly in her socialist days, not so much in her eugenicist days, they were strong supporters of women's suffrage, not because they thought women's suffrage was a cure-all, because they thought they needed it. They thought they were going to then do the work and do the organizing and use women's vote to accomplish things that progressive, capital P progressive, from the progressive era, 
reformers had been demanding, like anti-lynching laws, like ending child labor, neither of which, by the way, was passed when they expected it to be. But the things that they really cared about, the mainstream white, more middle-class suffrage leaders didn't care so much about those issues. Okay, I think we have a question from Jim. I just finished reading the Democratic Vistas booklet uh, from Mouse Book Club, and this a lot of the stuff you're saying tonight reminds me of what Whitman said about how in a democracy there are these grand ideas, but really we have to include everybody. He realized that it takes everybody to make this work. Like Chaisa said, this stuff repeats over and over again. Here we are. Although he was at the same time, really. Yes, he was at the same time. And in, in some ways, people like Stanton come out of the sort, the sort of large, she wasn't a transcendentalist, but she came out of some of the larger milieu that he came out of as well, this sort of white Protestant Northeastern world. The thing that I would say, I was just, we just did this film series at Penn State on democracy. You know, it has many different meanings. And, you know, I can see my students' eyes would be rolling right about now. I always say it's complicated. You know, history's complicated. And I don't think that any of them had a notion of democracy that, for instance, included economic democracy. They had a democracy based on property ownership, for instance, and white men heading households. And, you know, their version of democracy was not limited, was not as big, even as we would think, and ours is not as big as we think it is either, I would argue. I mean, the thing that I do, I'll just try to throw this out at you and see what you think. The thing that I do with my students, my students do not believe me that demanding the right for women to vote was a radical or terrifying or scary or problematic demand. They just don't believe me. So what I say to them is, how would you respond if I threw out a serious demand that children be allowed to vote? I mean, how would you respond to that? You will, I, I guarantee, I know how you, you will respond by raising every single question that was raised about women voting, because that's what every group of people I've ever raised this with, and it's been dozens, does. I believe Mo's got a comment. Mo, you want to jump in? It's more of a follow-up on Shaisa's question, or Dr. Ginsburg, your answer to Shaisa's question. My question is about Danton's statements about the franchise for Black men, Black women, and so forth. Do you see any change in the fight for rights that we see today and intersectionality from that time period? Look, I, I, I don't think that there's no change. I mean, I, I don't think that there's no change in the world, but I think that a rhetoric that used to be about some people's unfitness to vote has now turned into a rhetoric about voting fraud. And it all is to the same goal. It is to the same end. It is to an end of not letting certain people vote. And why is that? If we thought voting was meaningless, we wouldn't care. We, there wouldn't be any effort to suppress votes. We, there, we, uh, we, as a nation, have very mixed feelings about who is going to run the place. And I think that it was easier on the people in charge when they decided that God and nature and the law put them in charge and there was no challenge to that. And now there are challenges to that. And there have been for 150 years or 200 years challenges to that. And that's what this voter suppression, voter fraud stuff is about. Not letting groups empower themselves through voting. I also don't believe voting is the only way 
that people empower themselves. Obviously, I mean, people go on the streets, people do other things, people do all kinds of work and educational work and writing and journalism and um, working in all, I mean, every, so many parts of our society are people working for change of all kinds. Voting is one piece of it. You know, whenever I have students or on occasion relatives who have said to me, I just don't see any point in voting. It just doesn't matter. You know, my attitude is number one, people died for this. And number two, keep two thoughts in your brain at once. You know, go out and vote and then do the other work that you think is more important than effective. Because I think it's a privilege to decide you're above voting. I have a question about um, public discourse that maybe can build on some of the, the ideas that we've had here about history repeating itself and things being circular. Um, one of my favorite documents to teach is Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is, Fourth, is the Fourth of July, 1855 in Rochester. In that, in that speech, he raises the question of, you would have me stand here and argue that the slave is a human being. And that argument has been settled and we need to move the discussion forward. And he also says in that speech, scorching irony instead of convincing argument is what is needed now. I wonder where would Douglas intervene in public discourse today to say these are things that are settled and we need to move the conversation forward, but also corollary to that, these individuals that we're talking about tonight lived in an era where they believed that language could change people's minds. <laughs> and, and it's possible that we're living in a society where language is not quite doing what it used to do. Um, and I wonder if you think about that in terms of your role as an intellectual historian, where do you see the, the, the public discourse evolving today? Well, that I think about all the time, but it's not as a historian, but as a human who has to get up in the, in the morning and read the newspaper. Um, that, um, if you want to, I mean, what, what Douglas would think today might be better to, you know, you have to get David Blight on one of these talks and ask him. But, um, you know, I think that there's two ways of thinking about American history. Oh, I'm gonna so oversimplify here. One way of, of thinking about American history is that things keep getting better and we keep progressing and becoming more exclusive. I mean, inclusive. And the other way of thinking about it is that white supremacy is such a chasm through this history that we just keep chipping away at it. I guess that's a mixed metaphor and not closing it. And there are times that are better and worse. Reconstruction was in many ways a very hopeful time, but the end of it with that much vaunted compromise of 1876 that Ted Cruz kept talking about was crushing and allowed the reemergence of white supremacy in the South and the reunification of North and South after the Civil War was based on an embrace, maybe embrace is too strong a word, I don't think so, of white supremacy. Certainly a rejection of racial justice. It's very hard to do anything except keep saying that. I don't know what else, I don't know what else to do with my next 30 years except keep saying that, all of us. I don't know what else to say. It's very discouraging sometimes, but I do think, I obviously do think there's progress in many ways. Could you talk a little bit about your hopes and fears for the next chapter in the women's rights movement? My niece recently interviewed me for some class she was taking on, I don't know, radical women or something. And she said to me, what do you think the most important goal for feminists should be right now? And I said, well, the thing that would help the most women in the world right now would be doubling the minimum wage and universal health care and child care. Those may not be the first things that Elizabeth Cady Stanton would look to, but I feel like most of the most of the goals that she sought that were the sort of liberal democratic goals, you know, the goals that she wanted within a liberal democracy, the vote, access to education, 
formal access to education. I don't mean that she supported an economic democracy that made it real and equitable, but formal access to education, the vote, wages, laws that protected people, those things that can be put in the law books that she thought of have for the most part been accomplished. Most of them were accomplished in her lifetime, many of them. But the other things, the things that actual real women would most be able to increase their independence and status by have to do with wages, healthcare, and childcare. And those aren't the only things. So like anybody wants to say to me, but what about this? What about that? That's fine. I think those are the three legs of the stool that would most advance women's status and rights right now in this country. My friends who study India tell me that what's needed there is for women not to have to walk more than five miles to get water. Let's just imagine for a second that you're somebody who is somewhat oblivious to your entitlement or the fact that you operate within a context of white supremacy. What's a starting point for you to start getting in tune with what's really going on? Like you folks, I would say reading is a good thing. You know, they could, they could set for themselves a course of study, starting with reading, you know, bell hooks and other activists and writers and feminists. They could watch TED Talks. I just today was watching one by Loretta Ross, an um, African-American feminist activist. You know, th there's, there's all kinds of resources out there. If, they, if people want, they could listen to their women friends, it, um, their sisters, their mothers. If people want to learn um, stuff, and it's obviously not just men who haven't learned about the history of feminism or current feminist thinking, there's plenty out there for them to read. But the, your question, which is a good one, isn't really just like, what would I assign them? It's like, what do I think would break through? And that's a little harder because I have had students over the years, um, I've had thousands of students over the years, you know, who once they're already taking a women's studies class, someone's already pushed them to think about this stuff. One of the things that I've always been told by people who study social movements and social change is you can't change somebody who's 10 steps to the right or left of you. You've got to change the person who's next to you. So I am the wrong, even though I teach students of a wide range of views, I'm probably not the right person to walk into a totally hostile, anti-feminist, white supremacist setting and try to change people's minds. People need to be changed by the people who are sitting next to them in their spaces. And I'm not in those spaces. I mean, I'm not that person. We all do the educational work by inches, I think, in social movements. You know, you, you raise your own kids to be feminists and um, then they talk to their friends and you just keep pushing people a little bit as best you can. And, and you've been on an incredible journey in your life and career of uh, trying to come to terms with your ideas as a scholar. But I guess my question is, how, how, you, how did you get your origins? Describe the arc of your career on both of those fronts, the scholarly and the political. Well, I grew up in New York at the sort of end of the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement, beginning of feminist movements in a very progressive all girls public high school and politics was every place. And I grew up in a liberal Jewish family where the main thing that happened at every single dinner and breakfast table was, what do you think? Talk about developing analytical skills and what do you think? And why do you think that? And, what, and what's that based on? And you know, if I could give my students any one thing that I grew up with that most of them didn't, it's a dinner table where someone says, what do you think? That would be the thing I would love to give them. So, and then I went to college and I went off to college as a little radical feminist who was sure I couldn't learn anything, had nothing to learn. And then I discovered history and fell in love. I, I took a course from our only Marxist historian in my college on um, the Russian revolution. And I discovered this incredible thing, which was that historians disagree with each other and they argue. 
which was, as far as I was concerned, the most fun thing in the world. And so I fell in love and stuck, kept doing it. It never was separate. I guess what I'm saying is it was never separate. I mean, I had no reason to do history and I still see no reason to do history if it doesn't do something to help think about how we can reshape the world we live in. Okay, thus concludes this meeting of the Mouse Book Club. Huge thanks to Lori Ginsberg for sharing her wisdom with us today. We will definitely link to her biography of Katie Stanton in the show notes. Please remember to stop by mousebookclub.com and check out our book selection. Of course, mouse books make great gifts, so shop liberally. Special thanks to Tom and Colin and the rest of the team over at Lake County Press in Waukegan, Illinois, who print all of our books. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and rate us. And if you can, just a couple extra seconds and leave a review. It helps the algorithm bump the show and hopefully more people will discover us. Or better yet, just take a second and send a link to a reading enthusiast in your life. Thanks again and please join us next week.